Hi, welcome to the Weird World Podcast. My name's Carrie. I'm Jack. I'm Dean. And Dean's gonna tell us something. Is it weird? Yeah, it's pretty weird. It's a strange story. It's it's ripped from the pages of yesterday. Oh. A little bit of a history, but it's 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 as we promised for quite some time and rarely deliver on. <laughs> oh, this is not something that involves murder or mayhem or horrible outcomes or terrible, terrible, uncomfortable wow. stories at all. No mayhem? No mayhem, really, at all. Although it is kind of about war. I don't know. But, oh, oh, so it's but a... in an indirect way. Okay. 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 So I don't like war stories. This is not really FYI. a war story. Okay. No, no. It's a story of genius, really, Carrie. Creative genius. Oh, what would you do if you were, well, is, we are going to start a little bit with the war. Let's talk about <laughs> aircraft carriers for a second, okay? So what do you think would happen if the country had this impenetrable, unsinkable material that they could build massive ships with and, you know, take them into the teeth of the enemy and come out unscathed? I would try to get that same material. be a pretty big deal, wouldn't it? Yeah. I think so, too. Well, someone did invent this. And this person didn't just invent this amazing material. They also just constantly came up with these brilliant, creative, out-of-the-box ideas throughout World War II, working for the British Empire. Is this the, the history of vibranium? It is not, but oh. that's a good guess. That's a solid guess, <laughs> that fictional metal. I'm not even sure what it is, but... It's a, it's a fictional metal from the Black Panther universe. Oh, okay. So this person never ceased to come up with these phenomenal ideas to help turn the tide of war in favor of the Allies. So, of course, you all have heard of Jeffrey Nathaniel Pike. I'm assuming, I mean, this, this person who did these things would be a, a legend, a hero, wouldn't he? No. Well, Jeffrey Pike may have been this amazing genius, or he may have been the maddest scientist ever. I'm going for option two. Ah, we'll see. I'll, you know, let's let our listeners decide for themselves, okay, as okay. you can as well. So let's start with some background. I know Carrie likes this. Let's do the, some, I'm going to do some background this time. I'm starting <laughs> childhood here, okay? From birth, as a matter of fact. Jeffrey Pike had kind of an inauspicious start. His father was a lawyer, and he skipped town in 18, I think 1898, when Pike was five years old. He did one of the whole, you know, going out for a pack of smokes, never came back kind of a thing. Yeah. Mm. Left the family destitute. Wow. His mother, I guess, turned to help to her own family, but she didn't really get along with anybody. She also, quote, made life hell, unquote, for her children. So Pike's mom, not mother of the year. Well, it sounds like she had a rough time of it. She did. How many children were there? I don't know. More than one. I'm on her side. Okay. Yeah, of course you are, Gary. Even though she was probably a monster. Pike was sent to a school that was pretty much entirely populated by the children of army officers. Pike himself was not that, and he was also an Orthodox Jew. He's been raised by his mom as an Orthodox Jew, and she forced him to dress like that and to keep all the rituals of that in an English boys' school in Oops. the early 1900s. That huh. is not cool. I mean, it's not, not you know, you should practice your religion, et cetera, et cetera, but under the circumstances, that was just sending her 
small child into a terrible, terrible situation. And it, his level of social acceptance was, unsurprisingly, <laughs> very minimal since he was the only Orthodox Jew in that school. Again, these are, you know, little military brat English boys. This is not a good sign. So, by the age of 13, Pike, maybe out of rebellion, had become an atheist. But still, the, the ostracism and the bullying he faced in school would mark him forever. Other students would go on, quote, Pike hunts. Oh, they chase geez. him down and beat him up or just harass him. Ugh, kids are terrible. Kids are horrible and little English kids. If I can go by the lyrics of Pink Floyd and <laughs> certain movies were the worst of all. So he did not have a happy childhood. But what it left him with was this enduring, enduring hatred for the, quote, establishment. Or anything that smacked of that, you know, the kind of, especially the English, they have more of an establishment than we do in the United States. And he just, we do have one, but theirs is much more, you know, hierarchical. Theirs is more established. Yeah, it is. It's a more established <laughs> establishment. Still, he eventually found his way into Cambridge, where he followed in the footsteps of his deserting father and studied law. Oh. When World War I broke out, though, Pike was at Cambridge still, but he stopped his studies, and he was only 21 years old now, right? He decided he wanted to become a war correspondent. Just oh. like, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to help out. I'm going to, you know, go cover the war, bring it back. He got a job at the Daily Chronicle, and that newspaper was able somehow to wrangle a passport from a sailor in the U.S. Navy and so they used this. I don't know how. So they got the passport of an American sailor, and they gave it to Pike and said, hey, why don't you try to sneak into Germany with this passport? America was not at war yet, as you know. So they said, go through Denmark and come on down and make your way to Berlin with this fake passport and see what you can see and send back dispatches, right? Pike was able to do this successfully. He was the first Englishman since the start of World War I to successfully get into Germany and to be able to send back some, some information. Hmm. So he lasted six days, unfortunately, doing this. Well. At about, that's not bad, I guess. At about, at, after six days, the German police came knocking on the door of the house where he had like a bed sit. He was renting a room in this house, and they knock, knock, knock. Do you have this you know, American sailor with an English accent here? Yeah, okay. So they arrested him. Took him to a prison. He thought, I'm dead. Yeah. They're going to execute me as a spy, which he, you know, more or less was. However, after a few days, he's always a, a very logical guy. So after a few days, he thought to himself, you know what? I think I'm, they're going to let me live. Why? What, what was his, his rationale? He said, why would they waste good money on my upkeep and food for four days if they're just going to shoot me on the fifth? So I don't think they're going to shoot me. That's not the greatest logic ever. <laughs> no, it's not. It was to Jeffrey Pike. He was kind of almost just coldly rational in, in his own way, right? You'll see, at the very end, you'll see something incredibly rational, which is also fairly horrible. He was in prison, though, and he was you know, not fed enough food. He was kept in, in a small cell in kind of a solitary confinement. He hungered for books and as well as food, 
And he eventually was taken to an internment camp for war purposes called Ruben. And I guess, I, don't, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing it right. It's R-U-H-L-E-B-E-N. But it was kind of the main prison of war camp in Germany. It held uh, lots of folks, right? And there, it's like he was cold, he was hungry, he got double pneumonia, he, was, he got food poisoning, but he survived. And he just became obsessed with escaping. And it's considered impossible. His fellow inmates said, nope, not going to happen. Don't try. You'll just get caught and they'll probably shoot you. But a fellow Englishman named Edward Falk said, I'm game. <laughs> I'll try to escape with you. Let's get after this. Let's start planning. So they started working out to get nice and fit. Because they figured they're going to have to you know, hike to the Dutch or Danish frontier. And so, you know, kind of taking the back roads, I guess, or swamps or whatever. So they thought they'd get fit. They, they started doing calisthenics, a regimen of calisthenics to get nice and fit for the walk, for the hike. And, they, and Pike... Very, he was very mathematical. He's, again, he was very logically minded. He started keeping statistics. He started talking to the old timers there and gathering statistics on escape attempts and how, you know, what they had done and how successful or not successful they were. I guess they were very much not successful, but I guess he was studying what had gone wrong kind of a thing. So the numbers weren't good, but it didn't matter. He was going to do it and do it differently. So on July 9th, 1915, the two men gave it a try. They snuck into like a little hut, I guess, where they kept sports equipment. I guess they, you know, they, they let them exercise. They, oh, okay. Well, they let what? them play tennis. <laughs> dodgeball. Uh, maybe. <laughs> or POW dodgeball. That'd be good. They hid under a bunch of tennis nets. They snuck, so they snuck in there, hid under a bunch of tennis nets, and waited for night to fall. When it did, they got out of the hut, they scrambled over the fence, and they made a break for it. They made their run. That west. sounds shockingly easy. It does sound it weirdly does. easy, doesn't it? No barbed wire? I, I think there was barbed wall? wire, yes. Huh. But they, I, they had a plan. I don't know. Rugs? I don't know. Yeah. Didn't go into a lot of detail. Tennis nets. Maybe they did. Maybe they tossed over the tennis nets yeah. over the barbed wire. Sure, sure, sure. So they got their way to a tram station, and they rode that into Berlin. There they were able to, I don't know, they, they must have had some money because they bought some new clothes, secondhand, let's assume. They're the German goodwill. Goodwill. I think it's called. And they then, so they got these clothes, that, so they're no longer dressed like prisoners. If they're dressed like prisoners on the tram, I'm a little confused how that worked. Yeah. yeah. But apparently it did. I don't know how exactly. So from Berlin, they just headed west, and it was about 80 miles, 130 kilometers, to the Dutch border. So they started going west, right? They had to go through bogs. There were barbed wire fences along the way. They had to keep out of sight, of course. Finally, after several days of slogging through, they were inside of the border. They can see what they just ahead of them. So they said, you know what? It's nighttime, or it's almost night. Let's rest. Let's wait till, you know, oh, dark hundred, whatever. Eat, they ate the rest of their food, and they slept for a little bit to, to get up and make the dash, the final dash for the border. Tragically, while they were sleeping, they were discovered by an armed soldier that was reconnoitering the area. Oh, no. Less tragically, the soldier was Dutch. Oh. And he told them that, hey, guys, you're already 50 yards into Dutch territory. <laughs> you passed the border before already. You're fine. Come with me. So they had successfully escaped from Germany in 1915. Huh. Yeah. It's a pretty amazing story, and his story of, a, of captivity and escape was a huge hit when he got back to England. 
you know, he published it in his, his newspaper, The Daily Chronicle, and big story at the time. And at the, the British authorities thought, that seemed a little easy, and I guess they're a hair suspicious of the story, but no matter, it became a big hit. So the Daily Chronicle said, hey, we want you to write more things about that, about the war, and he said, hard pass. Pike said, I don't want to be a war correspondent anymore. Yeah. Don't want to write for you. I'm out. So he, toward the end of the war, in March of 2018, he got, I'm skipping ahead, by the way. I don't know what he did for the rest of the war. He married <laughs> Margaret, <laughs> Margaret Amy Chubb, he married her three months after meeting her, so and then pretty soon they started a family. He kind of just sort of meandered through the interwar period. He it seems like he you know he became eventually he became like a stockbroker and commodities broker. I don't know how he got into that, but he got into brokerage, brokerage, and he actually did pretty well. And when his son David was born, he then almost immediately became obsessed with the education of, of the child. Like he became like, I want to be this education expert now. I want to have the most modern, up-to-date education for my kid, David, and, and see what happens. He was very, he was very progressive. So he, not trusting any school to have the, the latest and greatest, yeah. he decided to start a school right there in his own house. And he did, with his first student being David. Wait, <laughs> did he ever graduate from, did he go back to I college? I think he did. I think he okay. went back to Cambridge and, and got his degrees, yes. Okay. That's probably what he did during the rest of the war. Went back to school. Okay. Let's, let's assume. Okay. So he established a school for children in his home, and he hired a psychologist, a very progressive female psychologist, to run it for him. He called the school the Malting House School. And it was, like I said, it was super progressive. The children would never be disciplined ever for anything. The children were considered plants, quote unquote, that were there to grow Oh. And no, a good thing. Not not like plant people. This is not a whore. This is not Robert. This is not uh, Stein. <laughs> What's that guy's name? R.L. Stein. R.L. Stein. Robert, I'm assuming. Bobby. <laughs> uh, the school was... Um, also, the teachers were not called teachers. They were co-investigators. What? Because they're just investigating the world around, world around them, Gary. That's what they're there to do. The teachers were? The, the students were, and the teachers were investigating oh. with them. They were co-investigators. Gotcha. Okay. okay. So the school was way ahead of its time. It's very Montessori-ish. It is a little bit. And actually, it was a lot of progressive edu educators gave it high marks, but it wasn't a huge financial success. It sort of struggled. He was subsidizing it with his, his stockbroker and commodities broking money. But when he made a bad play on the market and essentially was forced into bankruptcy, the school had to be closed. There was not enough money to run it. Margaret then left him. <laughs> <laughs> and Pike became just a near recluse for a while. He for the next few years, he survived on handouts from friends, essentially. Wow. Friends and allies. But as the 1930s wore on and the Nazis became more they took over Germany and became more and more powerful on the international stage and more threatening, Pike, remember, he was Jewish, he was roused from his depression to fight the anti-Semitism of Hitler. So he wrote... Articles about them in magazines. He raised money for the anti, the cause against anti-Semitism and against the Nazis. And he publicly would urge the British leaders to be more forceful in their condemnations of Hitler, because a lot of the British leaders, even the ones who didn't like Hitler, were pretty weaselly about condemning Hitler. And he would try to pressure them. To Neville. Be, yeah, pretty much all of them, to be honest. Uh, most of them. He. Also, when the Spanish Civil War broke out, he supported the Republican side, 
which ironically was the good side. Yes. The, in, in this case, I think unless you're a fascist, then you think it was the bad side. He organized workers. He, he did some a scheme. He kind of showed his first organizational genius here where he, I read some of the details, but he organized workers to give kind of their free time to, uh, to do like work that would raise money that would then buy medical supplies and ambulances and things like that and send them to the Republican cause in Spain. In fact, initially, the trade unions were against this because, like, we don't like the idea of our people working for free for anything. But they, they warmed <laughs> up and they yeah. helped him eventually. Mm. And it became pretty successful. It was actually, you know, the public knew about that. And he was, he, he was able to get a lot of supplies to this, the Republican cause in Spain, unfortunately, to no avail. And he was, and this is also, you see the first spark of his creativity. He, I guess they didn't have enough cotton and they needed medical supply, you know, for gauze and, and, and things like that, right? right? So he said, well, what does Spain have a lot of? What does Spain have a lot of? Girl, I don't know. Uh, have you heard of Spanish moss? I have heard of Spanish Actually, moss. Actually, it's made me Spanish moss. <laughs> but he, was, he devised a way to use peat moss. Is peat oh. moss different than Spanish moss? Yes. Okay, well, I don't I know. I don't know. I ain't no botanist. <laughs> But they had a lot of uh, peat moss, so he figured out a way to use peat moss to use it with what cotton they had and turn it into decent metal oh. gauze and, and augmented their cotton with peat moss. So again, Weird. interesting. thinking he was a smart dude. Soon, though, an even bigger conflagration shadowed Europe. This, of course, was World War II. Pike was going to be ready to do whatever he could to fight the Nazis in World War II. So... Let's talk about some of his Pike dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That's what I said. His tireless efforts for the Spanish. Shut the fuck up. Bullshit. First of all, tireless. Second of all, efforts. <laughs> I'm going to start over. Yeah, oh, right, But we're not cutting that out. So Pike's tireless efforts and his great ideas. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. Helping Spain had not gone, uh, gone unnoticed, mm-hmm. right? So as war loomed, the British civilian leaders called him, said, you know, we, you can help out. Why don't you become an advisor, be a kind of a civilian advisor for CO, combined operations. That was essentially, you know, war operations for the British government. And it, it was kind of like, almost like a sort of a secret think tank. And it was headed by none other than Lord uh, Mountbatten. Oh. He was a member of the royal family. Remember, he eventually got blown up by terrorists, but he was... He was a distant cousin of Queen Elizabeth, who would become the young lady who would become Queen Elizabeth II. And he was also the uncle of her husband, Prince Philip. I was going to say, because, yeah. Because, you know, royalty. Yeah. So he was connected both ways. But he, so he, was, but he was a big deal. He was like a, eventually, I think, he was the Duke of Edinburgh or something like that. Lord Mountbatten was a big royal. He was a big wig. And he was I've pretty, heard that name before. Yeah, so He I. was a huge character. When he got, he was killed by terrorists, I think the IRA, it was a mega story in the mid-'70s, I think. I'm going by complete memory on that, but I'm, I think that it was something like that. It was a big, big deal. I'll take hmm. your word. So he was relatively young and, and vigorous, and he really wanted to mix things up. He wanted to innovate. He didn't want the stodgy old, old same old, same old military kind of strategy. So he was... He Lord was, Mountbatten Lord did? Mountbatten yeah. Mountbatten. Mountbatten. Huh, that's, so that's surprising. Why, well, he was, he was still fairly young, and he, you know, World War I had... Remember, World War I was a, a lot of the problems in the early stages was the, the old ways of the military doing them over and over again, and it having the same bad result. Yeah. So he wanted to be different in World War II, so he had this combined operations, and he invited in, well, he thought, you know, someone like, like uh, Pike, who was this kind of out-of-the-box thinker. He wanted as much of that as possible. So the group was tasked with developing 
solutions to wartime needs and wants and trying to be as creative and unusual as possible. You know, they really wanted new ideas, new weapons, new strategies, new technology, anything that could be used for the war effort, they wanted to, to develop it, right? So Pike was intended to help the military folks by bringing in kind of his civilian ideas and his, his genius for thinking of new and creative things. That, you know, again, Mountbatten thought these, these military guys are gonna do what they always do, what they're trained to do. Let me bring someone here to shake that up, and that was Pike, okay? Okay. It did not take Pike long at all to start thinking up weird some, some, stuff. Some stuff. <laughs> no, let's not connotation carry. We'll let the listeners decide if it's weird or not. So, uh, you could call them devilishly clever if you want. He would soon kind of be called by his colleagues, quote, Professor Brainstorm. Oh. Let's just say that was an appreciation of his genius. Maybe not. <laughs> so, his first big idea. Actually, it was before the war started even. It was late 39. War with Germany was imminent. This is just before they invaded Poland. So the, the thinking was, can we stop this war from, from happening? Is it too late? Is it inev inevitable? If so, how could we do that? What's one's way? Pike said, okay, you know what? I have an idea. Maybe we can appeal to Hitler's better angels. <laughs> or at least we could maybe force him to bow to the will of his own people. <laughs> because yeah. that was so Hitler. Yeah. Like that. So Pike said, okay, let's do this. Let's go and take a public opinion poll in Germany and we'll show the results to Hitler. And if he if Hitler sees that his German people want peace, then maybe Hitler would realize the error of his ways and not <laughs> attack the West like it was very clear he was about to do. He was a tad naive. So, obviously, Pike was someone who understood his psychology brilliantly. But here's the problem. You can't send British pollsters into Germany at the time. Again, war was, was almost imminent. No British person was going into, in their right mind, was going into Germany. Certainly, Hitler would not allow them to go knock on doors and take poll. So he thought, okay, let me think. How can we do this? I mean, Pike's plan then was, I think, genius. You, you'd be the judge. He was going to recruit a bunch of British students and, and have them dress like amateur golfers, like college golfers, and go into Germany to play golf. And while they were playing golf, they would have clipboards and they would do polls. So they would, Carrie, let me finish with that look <laughs> of disdain on your, on your face. So they had golf, they'd carry around golf clubs that looked like golfers, but on the other hand, they'd carry around clipboards. And maybe they're just keeping golf score on those clipboards, Carrie. But in secret, they were gathering the public opinion of the German masses. That was the idea anyway. Uh, or whoever was at a golf at course. A golf club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he didn't stop to think about it. I don't think sampling was his strong suit. <laughs> but yeah, the, the idea was you secretly pull regular Germans with, you know, golf clubs in one hand, a clipboard in the other, and record the results. It was foolproof, sure. in my opinion. So Problems arose, though, pretty immediately in the form of that first part, which was recruitment, because it turns out very few British students were really eager yeah. to go into Germany in, in, I think, you know, the summer of 1939. He got a few, though, and he did dress them up in, I, I'm assuming, stupid, the stupid golf pants that stop at the knees and he had the long socks because he would uh -huh. look like an idiot. And so they got there days <laughs> before Germany invaded Poland. 
And when that occurred, on the day that occurred, they fled for the border yep. and they barely got out of the country ahead of the Gestapo. So he almost got a, a few British students, students murdered or killed, God. but they were able to get out. Thankfully, he was able to get them out. So, okay, I grant you idea number one didn't go super well, okay? But let's, let's give him time. So another early idea he had was balloons. He, I guess he was, he was, I don't know, maybe it was a, a, a gender reveal party in 1939 or 40 uh, Britain, because he saw a bunch of balloons let off into the air, right? And that gave him an idea. He said, why can't we just attach microphones to a bunch of balloons, set them up in the air, and then we'll use the sound, the record sound, right? And then when German planes come over to bomb the British mainland, we will triangulate with those microphones, we'll triangulate the location and send the raft right up to them. The Germans will never know it hit them because they don't expect it, you know, they, we, we would catch them when they're still over the channel, I guess, before they got to the mainland and therefore, you know, the Germans would be unaware, not wary and not ready for the British uh, counterattack. That, no. that was the idea. Stupid. You don't like it? I don't even get it. Well, it was essentially using balloons as a form of radar. Unfortunately for Pike, radar was just about to be in, <laughs> unveiled. It was, it was already a thing, but it was very, very secret. And it was like, you know, almost immediately he said, you know what? Thanks, Jeff. But we have this other thing that's called <laughs> radar. We're going to go ahead and use that instead of your balloons with microphones. So it, it, basically the balloons were instantly obsolete. I'm not sure. I don't think they would have worked. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. That doesn't sound plausible. I don't know how he would have done that. How, I mean, are they on wires? I mean, I don't exactly. know how. Exactly. Do they have wireless microphones? Well, they had radio. But not wireless microphones. Well, I, I, as long as you're hearing them live, I think that, if you have an open channel, I don't know. I'm not a radio expert. I don't know. And also, what was the range of the microphones? Yeah. yeah. They'd, have to, they'd have to have either a ton of microphones. Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how well And know exactly where each balloon was. Hey, hey I mean, he's the idea guy. You guys figure out the technicalities, <laughs> all right? Later... He thought, okay, early on, Norway was, was expected to be a potential theater of war. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but a lot of the attention for where D-Day, you know, they didn't know where the Allies, the Germans didn't know by 1944 where the Allies were going to land. A lot of people thought it was going to be, a lot of the Germans actually thought it was going to be in Norway. So the Norwegian coast was heavily fortified with those, you know, those pillbox machine gun turrets and things like that yeah. that you, you've seen in Saving Private Ryan. They had those all over Norway as well because they thought the invasion might come through there. So Pike w uh, wanted to kind of think about how you fight in the snow, especially heavy snow. So he dreamed up a thing called the weasel. This would be kind of an amphibious Jeep that would be able to move through either thick mud or, or more importantly, deep snow with like a giant screw-like cylinders on either end. I mean, they, it's, it's weird. So it'd be able to move right through deep snow that way. And even more brilliantly, this. I, this vehicle would be able to jump sideways to avoid enemy bombs. So if you saw a bomb oh. <laughs> coming for you, I don't know, you push a button and it jumps sideways <laughs> real quick somehow. <laughs> so that was his idea anyway. Reaction from Lauren Mountbatten was very positive. He loved you, Pike. You guys both keep saying Lord Mountain Batten. No, Mountbatten. You, you said it right that time, but the time before that, and the time before that, and the time before that, you Mount Lord Batten. Mountain Batten. <laughs> Mountain Batten. <laughs> Mountain Batten. So Lord Mount Batten loved his gumption, his willingness to innovate. Reaction from the generals, though, a 
little less positive, actually, it turns out. A little less enthusiastic. They thought he was fucking nuts. They thought he was crazy. I mean, literally well, crazy. Yeah. But, now Mountbatten, I, I guess, early on was kind of a Mountbatten. Not Mountbatten. <laughs> yeah. Jack's bullying me, listeners. <laughs> so, Mountbatten was able to take over the CO, the combined operations, as its, its head in October of 1941. Before that, I guess he was just like, you know, I'm a royal and I'm involved with this thing. But he was actually, they, he replaced the general who was in charge with himself in October of 1941. And he gave the go-ahead for the previously rejected weasel to be developed. <laughs> of course. So... Mountbatten, uh, I guess they develop the idea, they have it on paper, they bring the idea to the attention of Prime Minister Winston Churchill in, I guess, late 1941. Churchill was less impressed. He would later write in his notes of that meeting, quote, never in the history of human conflict will so few immobilize so many. I, he, th- he thought it'd be just super slow and, and even and not get through the snow if they're fighting in that kind of a, a cold theater like that. Yeah. Although it turns out a modified version of the weasel was developed in Canada and was manufactured in the United States, and eventually it was deployed in Italy, up in the snows in the mountains of Italy. Wow! As it was called the M29 vehicle. I've seen a picture. We'll hopefully put a picture. But it does have these screw-like, these corkscrew-like. It looks tank-like, but yeah. it's not those rolling things. It's a screw. Um, it's pretty cool, actually. It, it, it is tank-like vehicle though, and it was again operated in snowy, so it didn't make a a big, you know, impact on the war, but it, it was a thing. Hmm. So let's, I mean, Pike didn't help himself with his appearance. Oh no. He, he had crazy hair. He was, he had crazy everything. He dressed ba- like a s- absolute slob. He dressed in old, often shabby, you know, patched up or needed patching kind of clothes. And the fly of his, his trousers was always wide open. <laughs> always. Not sometimes, always, though. And it was intentional. He thought an open fly was good for his health. Okay. <laughs> he, he truly did. He even introduced himself to the Canadian Prime Minister, Mackenzie King, who was in the UK for a visit with just ratty clothes and a wide open fly. And this is like, here's our scientific creative genius here, Mr. Yeah. Canadian Prime Minister. It's like the absent-minded professor. A little bit, yeah. He also usually worked from bed. Oh. He would often call military brass to his apartment while in bed to discuss his latest notion. And he always slept naked. So oh my God. <laughs> they would literally get to his room. They'd find him naked in bed, surrounded by piles of papers, bottles, cigarettes, notebooks, everything with his scrawled little fantasies and pictures and words just trying to pour out everything and share, do this, do that. Here's a great idea. Here's a great idea. And they just thought he was, they literally thought he was insane. He's just he, a bit eccentric. A little bit. Yeah. He once called strategic operations headquarters where, where um, the war folks were. And that's where Lord Mountbatten had his office. And he, <laughs> he asked for, you know, I, I guess the, whoever answered the phone wasn't good enough. He wanted an officer to come and, and to the, and talk to him on the phone. So an officer got there and he said, okay, Write this down. And he started dictating. Oh, my God. He called for the manager. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I have an urgent memo. It's for Mountain Batten's eyes only. Start writing. He went on for over an hour. Oh, my God. To this Lord. officer. Just going blah, 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 blah. He was expected to, to take down everything. And when, the call, when, when did he make that phone call? Five in the morning. I was going to say 3 a.m. Yeah. So... 
was not making fans. This man is crazy. Could you imagine if he was around when email came around? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> nobody would know peace. Or instant messaging. Oh, my God. I'd, I'd be off team so fast if he was on. I mean, ugh. Often after these bouts of this manic activity, he would fall into a funk and not get out of bed for days and days. So he may have been bipolar now or something like that. We don't know. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to, you know. He, retroactively right. diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. He, he may would be go, something. He would go in these up and down. Manic, manic, manic depressive episodes. Yes, he'd go manic for long and think of all these ideas. And then he'd just sit in his bed for days and days and days. His secretary knew when these kind of fits of melancholy were coming on because he would start humming to himself. Ew. It's like, okay, he's humming to himself. That's not good. Because soon after, every time he started humming to himself, he would just go into the room, shut the door, and not come out for days. Huh. That's weird. And by the way, so remember, he's, he would disappear. He wasn't going into the office or anything like that. And he, this is a guy who knew a lot of secrets. You probably don't want, you know, and people are like, where's Pike again? Because he yeah. knows shit. And, and if you disappear, it's maybe not a great thing for uh, intelligence operatives there. So he was not done. Jeffrey Pike was just getting warm. Oil. Big, big issue for the British in the war against Germany was oil. It's yes. a huge issue, right? Oil was the lifeblood of war for Germany as much as the Allies. If anything, more for, for Germany because Britain could get plenty of oil from the U.S. We had plenty of oil. Texas. Yeah. Alaska. Wait. Back then, probably mostly from the South. But anyway, we had, we had lots of oil and Brit- British overseas territories had a lot of oil too. So oil wasn't nearly as scarce as it, uh, to the Allies as it was to the Germans. The Germans, it turns out, got, they had no domestic oil, but they did have a reliable fascist client state in Romania on the Black Sea, which had lots and lots of oil. So Romania was critical to the German war effort because of the oil it supplied. Without that oil, the German war effort would be hampered severely, so the British brass the British brass hmm. asked Pike, what do you think? How could we disrupt that oil flow from Romania to Germany? Pike said, I'll, fig- I'll think of something for you. <laughs> Uh-oh. Trust me. I- I'll have an idea for you. Give me a couple of days. So, Make the road real icy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? At first, you're not that far off. Oh, shit. I'm assuming that uh, Pike had been to the Swiss Alps. I'm assuming he was an avid skier because his first pan- plan was to send... St. Bernard dogs uh-huh. with brandy barrels around their necks into the oil fields <laughs> where the remaining, sol- remaining soldiers who guarded the oil fields, fields get drunk? They would be drunk. Oh my they would, God. They would get the brandy off the dogs. Think, oh, this is, well, how nice. Who sent these? Oh, who cares? They've got good brandy and they would drink the brandy and get shwasted. And this sounds then, like a cartoon. <laughs> this is literally Wiley Coyote. This man is Wiley Coyote in the war version. Holds your assessment. No, I, he, I have enough evidence. And then he said, "Okay, when when they're drunk on brandy from the Saint Bernards, we'll attack." And the British could well, time, you know, their attack for maximum drunkenness. The Romans kind of did something similar with honey and bees. There you go. Okay then. I I think it's brilliant. Well, did it work? Did they do it? Did um, it work? I think we'd know if it did. No. I mean, the, the idea was clearly sound, but <laughs> the British general said, we're going to pass on that one. Yeah. Do you have anything else? Or maybe they didn't ask if he had anything else, but he did have something else. Put the dogs in danger, too. I don't like That's that. That's true. That's true. I so, don't think they would have cared. No, I don't think they would have either. Yeah, there are no. war. Yeah. Well, they send St. Bernard's up to, like, avalanche areas, right? Yeah, so, but that's their natural habitat. Yeah, still. There might be a... a, a <laughs> 
It's not their natural habitat at all. (laughs) (laughs) The Swiss Alps. I don't know if that is or not. But doesn't really have a natural habitat. What's the what? What if they have an after avalanche, like an after quake? But I'm I don't know. I'm worried about the dogs. I am too. I'm less worried about Pike's next idea. Was he said, okay, you know what? Forget the St. Bernards. How about instead of St. Bernard's doing that, we have actual human women (laughs) bring the brandy to the oil fields. This way, the the soldiers would not only get drunk, but they'd be distracted by these very attractive ladies (laughs) bringing them booze. Boobs and booze. booze. Is there anything more distracting to a Romanian soldier? I don't think so. So well, he actually presented this plan to the British leaders. <laughs> said, here's my idea. <laughs> you have a bunch of hot, hot, hot ladies fuck? bring brandy into these Romanian soldiers, get them drunk, we attack. You like what? it? What women? I don't British know. women? Don't think that would work. Uh, I guess, I don't know. I don't know. Romanian women? He wasn't super clear. He just said women. Okay. The British generals were lukewarm to the proposal at best. And so he said, you know what? I'm not done. I've got a backup plan. I've got a plan C. He said, you know what? Oil doesn't like fire. Oh, no. I was going to say that jokingly. <laughs> Earlier, I was going to say burn it. Fire is oh, no friend no. to oil, right? So here's the idea. The, un- the British could send spies into the fields, right? Secretly. At night, I guess. Well, yeah, they're and spies. They will, well, and they would start oil fires, Right. And then they would get the hell out of there. And in their place, British commandos could dress up in perfect replica Romanian fire fire outfits with like Romanian fire engines and, you know, ambulances and sirens wailing, go on to the oil fields to put out the fires. Uh But no, 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 no. What's in those hoses? It's not just water. It's water mixed with an incendiary device that would make the fires much, much Worse. So as they're putting out the fires, these these Romanian firefighter replica dressed British commandos, they would actually be making it worse, inflaming the flames right under the noses of those Romanian soldier guards. What this, were they going to do when the real Romanian firefighters show don't up? Question it. Just do it, <laughs> says Dora. <laughs> so that I mean, that's what do you think? That's not a bad idea. It would cripple Germany. It, it was genius. So unfortunately, cooler has prevailed because, damn it, the plan was never implemented. I mean, that's that is sad because that would be make a brilliant black comedy, like an appropriate time later, like twenty years. Let's say they could have made a British comedy. I'm thinking Peter Sellers, maybe uh, Sir Larry Olivier wants to do some some lighter fare. He's sick of Shakespeare. Maybe you get Steve McQueen. Sick of blackface. Steve McQueen. You have an American Steve McQueen to open up that North American box office. He could be like an American BLW who escaped and the British said, well, how about you help us do this? I mean, it writes itself. So I don't know. It's too bad they didn't try that. That would have been great. No, I'm okay with them not trying it and burning thousands of gallons of gasoline. Hey, you gotta win a war. All right. No, fuck war. Okay. <laughs> War's the worst what? thing ever. The Nazis didn't think that. And they were oh, the I do. Waging it. I have a lot of disagreements with the Nazis. Well, okay. <laughs> so did everyone else. <laughs> but that was not the end of Pike, even though they said no to this in a long series of no's to him. He was not done. Okay, so World War II, as I mentioned earlier, was not just the Russian front. It wasn't just, you know, France and, and Germany. It was, it was, again, Norway. And a lot of people thought Norway was going to be a theater of war. And also, the Nazis, however, had taken over Scandinavia. 
right? They took, except for Sweden, which they sort of had a tacit agreement with Sweden. You keep mining and selling us iron ore and we won't take you over. So Sweden remained quote unquote neutral, but sold iron throughout, and timber, I believe, to the Nazis throughout the war. Oof. So the Nazis had control of Scandinavia. And again, as I mentioned, the, a lot, the allies were considering Norway as the, the entry point for the invasion of the continent uh, after Italy, instead of, D- instead of uh, Normandy. And uh, the Germans had fortified it and were considering that as well. They thought that was a, a likely entry point as well. So Jeffrey Pike thought, okay, I'm not gonna rest on my laurels with the weasel. Let me think more about fighting in cold climate, in snow. So he designed a motorized sled that would be controlled by a soldier, but the soldier wouldn't be on the sled because what is Norway, the mountains of Norway famous for? Or what do they have a lot of in Norway? Oh, what, snow. bitch? They trees. have trees. They have tre- trees, but they also have crevasses. Oh. Almost Girl. invisible crevasses. Like that is the thing that everybody knows about you Norway. Know Norwegian <laughs> crevasses. No. They're very dangerous. Well, Pike did. So he thought, look, look let's not have the soldier riding these motorized sleds be on the sledge, we'll have him trail it, and you can have like reins, and you, and you can use the reins to control the steering of the sledge, and therefore, if he saw, you know, whatever, 40 feet ahead, and if he saw it going to a crevasse, he just lets go, and he doesn't, and the soldier lives. That was his idea, and I think it's a very good one. I they, mean, out of all the ideas he's had so far, this is probably the most, or I guess, at least crazy. Well, the British soldiers disagreed because they tried it out, and it turned out that a lone person walking on white snow was an incredibly easy target for German snipers to kill. That makes yeah. a lot so of sense. Well, the soldiers, camouflage. Not fans of it. Not fans. And, and no, so it, it went nowhere. They should have been all white. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. They have right. camouflage for snow. I suppose they do. Well, they didn't think of that. They didn't. I, I guess, know. Jeffrey, you didn't think of that? <laughs> no matter, though, he had a plan B for the sleds. He was not of done course. with these motorized sleds. He, uh, he said, you know what? Here's an idea. How about we use those sleds and we entice the Germans to follow you and get fairly close? In fact, let's do that by what we'll do is we'll ride them up a nice steep hill, right? So you ride them up a steep hill. You're going slow because it's a steep hill. The Germans see you and say, easy pickings. They come after you. What do you do then? You step off the damn thing because loaded in your sled in crates is torpedoes. Torpedoes. So you simply step off, I guess put it in reverse, <laughs> and have the sled roll back down the hill into the pursuing Germans and blow them up. Oh. This is, that's pretty good. Pike, though, remember, was a humanitarian. So he thought, well, wait, hold on. What if one of these sleds is just comes into possession of, of civilians? He thought, I don't want anybody to get hurt with this torpedo. So they would write in German, on the crate that held the torpedo, something like, something to warn people away so they wouldn't touch it or go near it. One of his ideas was, danger, secret, secret Gestapo death ray. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so I was like, no German. Another one would say, it was supposed to say like, um, latrine for officers only, because he thought the Germans were like super <laughs> obedient and they would never go mess with that or something like that because it's for officers only. But Why not in Norwegian? I, that's a great question. Yeah. So any innocent Stupid. young German in Norway would surely stay away from the Gestapo death ray was his idea. So again, the downhill torpedo sled was also nixed, unfortunately. And he thought, okay, you know what? We've got another problem. 
again, as invasion of the continent, the mainland became imminent, one thing that's true, like the French coast, let's say the French coast doesn't have a lot of natural harbors. There's a lot of just beaches and sand, right? Mm -hmm. So it's tough to get supplies and people on there like that. So he thought, okay, here, you know how we can do that? You know how I can get supplies onto the beachhead? Pipes. We use pipes. We just pump small material through these four or six inch pipes from boats underwater and then come, they come out on the beach and you pump them there and they just blop, 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 plop them onto the beach, right? Onto the land. He said, and, and maybe we can build bigger pipes to get larger materials. And so someone said, you know, the materials just sit there. We need people. You can see where this is going. Oh, we need God. people to use those materials. So Pike said, fine. <laughs> make them we, even bigger. <laughs> we will just make two foot pipes and we will, I oh guess, my God. pneumatically shoot human beings, Please. soldiers, through pipes, underwater, underwater, and onto the beachhead. Mm. He said... Like they're male. It's kind of <sighs> like, I guess his mechanism was it used in pressure, and it also used something yeah, like a plumbing, plumber's weasel kind of a thing, like, a, like you know that thing that, that pushes... An auger? Auger, something like that. I'm not sure exactly what. I've, it's, it's weird. Auger, some combination of those two things. But of course, remember, they'd be underwater, and they'd be in a pipe for a long time. So he said, no problem, we'll give them a supply of oxygen. And someone else said, well, how about claustrophobia? It's going to be really freaky in there. He said, that's not a problem. We'll just use drugs. We'll give them barbiturates, <laughs> and they'll be calm. And he said, well, we, maybe we don't want them to be sleepy when they get to the land. So he said, okay, well, how about we send them in pairs so they'll have someone to talk to <laughs> while they're going through the pipe, the darkness in the water, and breathing oxygen. Oh, man. This was his, uh, his main idea. Sure, people scoffed at Pike. No, they should but, and he was kind of pissy about it. He said, well, it's better than, it's safer than like nighttime parachuting into enemy territory, or it's also better than being is bombed it? on beaches. Now, isn't it, was his retort. <laughs> I don't know if it is. <laughs> yeah, I don't, he may have been right about that last part. Maybe about that last part, but it's also not possible. No, it's probably not. So <laughs> it's just, he didn't, th he was not one to think about the human side of things, yeah. except for yes. his torpedoes. So finally, just when even Mountbatten was beginning to think that Pike might be more mad than genius and his support just was now. flailing, yeah, it took a while, Pike brought out his ace in the hole that he had long had up his sleeve. He revealed his most triumphant idea yet, the Habakkuk. Uh-huh. Project Habakkuk was born with, with Pike's brilliant idea. What are you saying? Habakkuk. H-A-B-A-K-K. K-K-U-K. Habakkuk, take, Habakkuk. A, huh. take, take a cook. He, it means something and something. <laughs> I just don't know what. I'm sure. It sounds Scandinavian. Or German, maybe. A little bit. Look it up. The KK. I, I didn't. <laughs> Sorry about that. He thought, okay, the Habakkuk is going to be big. It's going to be more than aircraft carrier big, as in like maybe a half mile long big. Jesus. But... We're not going to make this from, you know, whatever, steel and concrete like you'd make a giant, because you couldn't make an aircraft carrier that big. No, 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 no. The Habakkuk would be made entirely out of ice. Oh. Have you heard about this? I have. It was, it's actually, it, it had, well, we'll we're going to talk about it now, but it had some legs. There was some dispute over exactly how he made it. He, he apparently reinforced it with like wood shavings and or sand. It wasn't literally just ice. But it was it was somehow reinforced, probably with wood sh wood shavings. Wait, Habakkuk okay. is a Hebrew prophet of the seventh century BC who prophesied an imminent 
Chaldean invasion. Chaldean. Chaldean yeah. invasion. Okay, yeah. he saw the soldiers That's on the frontier, is, and he yeah. said, "Oh no, they're going to invade!" I swear to God. Um, so, but, but perfect name then. I don't know. Some perfect. I guess Jeffrey. Perfect. Yeah. He just wanted. He liked the way it sounded. He said, "I want to say cook." Really, he liked Habakkuk. Pike. He called this ice-based material pikecrete. Pikecrete. Get it? Yeah. Concrete. Because yeah. remember, he was fully aware of his insatiable genius. He <laughs> boasted that it was strong as concrete, but much much lighter than concrete. And he devised a way to have sort of onboard refrigeration machines that could keep it cold and so it wouldn't melt very quickly when it got into warmer seas. Besides, as everyone knew, every ship captain probably knew, icebergs actually can linger much longer in warm water than people think they can. They don't break up for a long time. That's why, I mean, the, the Titanic you know, was in obviously not frozen water. Yeah. They, they actually can float away and, and last for quite a while. And so at least initially, Pike's ini first idea was to essentially build like almost like giant, giant, giant icebergs and use them as like floating islands that would be floating movable sea bases and air bases for the allies. And I mean, that was the, that was the initial idea. I mean, it's, it's not insane. But soon this idea kind of morphed into big ships, huge ships, like giant oversized aircraft carriers, carriers as well. Because the idea is that you can make 30 foot thick. He's going to have his ships are going to be Jesus. 30 foot thick sides, just impenetrable. They'd be impregnable by normal, you know, uh, weapons of war at this time. And these mega ships would be able to, to go wherever they wanted and be pretty much unsinkable. I mean, ice is also unsinkable. So the Nazis couldn't do a damn thing about it. They'd be over 2,000 feet long. Right, which is, by the way, is twice as long as the Queen Mary, the huge wow. ocean liner in Long Beach, California. And they, the Habakkuks would be able, he thought maybe they could lead like an invasion force. And they were so big that normal aircraft carriers have just, you know, you've seen them, they have those kind of smaller fighter jets, right? Uh -huh. Maybe fighter bombers on. These would be big enough, big enough to have traditional, much larger uh, bomber jets and supply aircraft in addition to the smaller fighters because they're so huge. They can carry much, much more weight and more supplies and, and bigger planes than any normal aircraft carrier could. So it's actually, you know, if this would work, it'd, yeah. be, it'd be pretty amazing. When they're in attack mode, they would have like a flotilla of ships around them, he thought, and, and they would go into an enemy harbor, say, right? And they would take it over and they would then, he devised a ice guns, I don't know, he didn't call them that, but essentially he, he, he thought of a way, he thought we could super cool water, make it, there's a way to make water below freezing Gosh. but still be uh, liquefied. Mm -hmm. So he would use that technology and have like, like ice shooting cannons and would uh, go, so go into the harbor in this impregnable ship, this pikecrete made ship, and turn the ice cannons onto all the German ships and freeze them and disable them. It was, I mean. Would freezing a ship disable it? I think so. I feel, I feel like it would. Shit, probably. He was, he, what he was basically, he had invented the arsenal of Mr. Freeze yeah. before Mr. Freeze was invented by the creators of Batman. <laughs> Many years later, 1959. I looked, it up. I looked that up, but not Habakkuk. <laughs> so Pike theorized that these big ships could, okay, so they cruise into the sea base, they shower the Nazi warships with cold, cold, cold water, freeze them, encase them. They would probably surrender the, the people left that weren't dead, he, he assumed. And then the Allies would then 
uh, uh, blockade the harbor with giant, giant blocks of pikerite, meaning the Germans couldn't counterattack. So they couldn't send ships into the harbor to attack them. They would be blockaded out of it. So they'd have like free reign in this harbor protected by these pikerite blockades. And, and then what would happen, then these commandos would go ashore and spread out over the, the mainland, I guess, and use some more of those ice guns. <laughs> and then like uh, mess with, with infrastructure, like shoot them over, over, ice up railroad tunnels or things like that and bringing transport to a grinding halt and just you know, you know generally messing with the function of that territory wherever it was. At least until it got really warm. Yeah. <laughs> Warmer later on. But until then, watch out. Mr. Freeze was going to ice <laughs> up your harbor and your <laughs> railway tunnels and shit like that. So parts of the British brass loved it. It was actually like, wait a second, you might be onto something here. Or at least they didn't think it was entirely nuts because they, you know, ice floated. Ice was is virtually unseekable. It's very tough. I mean, solid blocks of ice are extremely yeah. tough. And as I mentioned, these big blocks of ice, if it's big enough, it can survive in even relatively warm water for quite a while. So again, Lord Mountbatten was enamored. So he supposedly took a big chunk of pikerite, a big sample chunk of pikerite. He ran into Churchill's, Winston Churchill's bathroom where he was, the prime minister was bathing. And he dropped a chunk of pikerite into his steaming hot bath and said, wait, look, that thing's not gonna melt. And it melted. this is Pike, he's, you know, he's a genius. <laughs> Churchill, apparently, he fished up the Pike Creek from his, his floppy old junk, and he said, oh my God, you're right. This thing's not melting, let's do this. Winston Churchill was on board. Wow. He sent a memo to the cabinet that had most secret stamped on it, and it said, quote, I attach the greatest importance to the prompt examination of these ideas. The advantages of a floating island or islands, even if only used as refueling depots for aircraft, are so dazzling that they do not need at the moment to be discussed. So he was, again, this is the early part before Pike thought, okay, we can turn these into warships. They were going to be these floating sea bases, essentially. So Mountbatten told Pike, okay, bro, this is happening. You get this super material ready for trials. And this is, this is gonna happen. So Pike started making the, the pikerite. To maintain his secrecy, he worked in his disused basement butcher's meat locker Ugh. in the Smithfield Market <laughs> area of London. That's the famous market area where the butchers have been for centuries. And he started making his pikerite. He's ready for crunch time. Crunch what? time is August in 1943 in uh -oh. Quebec. They're at the Chateau Frontenac Hotel. Oh. In Quebec? Jack's like, oh, I've stayed there. I've, no, I've lovely, heard of lovely. it. <laughs> I have a sticker of it. <laughs> oh. I do. The mints on the pillows are delicious. <laughs> it's a famous hotel It's a very Quebec, famous hotel. you bitch. Well, at this time, a bunch of the brass from the U.S., Canada, and Britain were meeting, right? So they sent Pike over there to show him and demonstrate the powers and wonders of Pikerite, right? So Pike, again, took a big sample. He walked in the middle of the room where they had a table, so they're all gathered around this table. He put the pikerite in the middle of the table, stepped back, reached into the jacket, his coat, oh, pulled no. out a gun, ah. and shot the sample of pikerite oh. right there in front of the generals and admirals and so, like that. Let me just risk everybody's life. <laughs> now, here's the thing. The pikerite was unscathed. 
The bullet ricocheted off I was it just and car- killed Winston Churchill. Yes, course, for the general that got his eye blown out. A bullet ricocheted off a lamp and then grazed the leg of Fleet Admiral Ernest King. <laughs> and he was not happy about that. But it was well worth it. He had demonstrated how powerful oh, wow. his pikery was. So the Allies quickly fell in line. They loved it. Let's do it. How is there not a movie made of this? I want to know. <laughs> I don't know. There but, is. It's called the Looney Tunes. <laughs> Uh, the American and British leaders said, we're going to build this thing and see if it can help us in the war effort. So development started, right? And then something was amiss, Pike noticed. Because Pike noticed after a while, he, he was told, yeah, this is being developed. He was not getting any phone calls. He was not being invited to any development meetings or anything like that whatsoever. He had, was hearing nothing about his invention or how it was going. Things were happening without him. Because Pike had been completely frozen out of his own project. Oops. Could it have been the telegram he had earlier sent to Mountbatten that read simply, quote, Chief of Naval Construction is an old woman, signed Pike. <laughs> Remember, Chief of Naval Construction would be in charge of this. That might have hurt his chances of being on the team, maybe. Didn't help, I'm sure. It also could have been the fact that other scientists said that Pike's idea of the whole weaponizing super cold water was ridiculous and nonsense. So they liked the Pikecrete thing, but his other ideas, other scientists were saying, that's crazy, it cannot work. So he yeah. was essentially sidelined, unfortunately, sadly, I think. I don't know about that. Well, they did develop a prototype. A big hunk of Pikecrete, I don't know if it's shaped like a ship or something, but they got, they got together a giant hunk of Pikecrete and they put it out on a lake in Canada and the sort of sort of almost to mimic the test that had been done on Churchill's bathroom, right? Uh-huh. They said if that thing can last the summer, we're you know we're good to go. Let's do this. So, what do you think happened? I think it melted. Either too. Nope. Yeah. Wow. Last no. the entire summer. Good <gasps> well, to go. Yeah, ice is good at staying. But this process took time. It took a few months to do that, right? Yeah. By the time the melting test was completed. The war was over. No, the war wasn't over, but the Allied (laughs) invasion of Normandy was kind of, the the planning for it was underway. And remember, once the Allies had that toehold in France, they didn't really need floating islands really anywhere once they uh, they had a a part of the mainland. I mean, the rest of the war would be fun on land, effectively, essentially. Mostly, uh, certainly, uh, at least in the European theater. So they didn't really need the floating islands for that. They they didn't really need harbor-busting ships, because again, there weren't a lot of harbors along the European coast that they needed to, to go in and, and attack. And also aircraft flight times had gotten longer. In the meantime, we had quick advances in how long they could may, remain in there without having to refuel. And then Portugal had finally come through and allowed the Allies to use the Azores Island oh. in the Mid-Atlantic as a refueling a, a base. So they much less needed these floating islands. And by the way, they had estimated cost for this and it would be massively expensive to build this Pikecrete to island size or ship size or yeah. something like that. So there just wasn't enough time or need or resources by time they had kind of tested it and said this could work for it to be built. And so they never built a fleet of Habakkuks, sadly, in my opinion. Well, Plus, weirdly, and we'll show this on, on our website or somewhere, there was a, a Superman comic strip where Supes discovered a Nazi sea base disguised as an iceberg. It came out in March of 1943 when the Habakkuk was under development, but in the early stages of its development. It's like Superman is like, what's that iceberg doing there? And he uses his x-ray vision 
or something, and, and, and it shows a cutaway that is, uh, well, on the strip, and it shows like a bunch of you know Nazi soldiers in there. He says, yeah. "Okay, it's on." He goes and he attacks the base. Yeah, but that's a little weird. Was it huh. leaked or something, or was it just the Superman writers being amazingly you know convergent creativity? I don't know. Yeah, I think that one. There's no new ideas. That's yeah, a, yep, coincidence. So the rest of the war, I think he was pretty much sidelined. He didn't really Oops. help anymore. The British government after the war, they let Pike patent Pikerite almost as a gimme. Okay, we kind of screwed you in that. So if you want to patent it and use it for civilian use, go for it. But he was kind of embittered, and he was also he was very sick. It was never revealed exactly what what he was sick, but he was in, in alien health, so he actually never got around to filing a patent for Pikerite and Aww. using it in civilian use. But he was not completely done. He still had some grand plans. What did Europe have a lot of after World War II? I know, Jack Why are you these quizzing things. us so much? <laughs> you don't know how to lot Rebel? of? Rebel? Unemployed people. Yeah. Idle hands. Dead bitches? Like no, no, li live people who didn't have jobs, right? Yeah. But it, what it didn't have a lot of was fuel. Coal, for instance, was still the backbone of the fuel system. Didn't have a lot of fuel, had a lot of people. So Pike says, boom, I can fix this. He said, you know what we'll do? Instead of using coal to um, you know, propel rail, railways, <laughs> rail cars, we'll use people. I'll devise a bicycle-like contraption to hitch up 20 to 30 unemployed men to pull rail cars along rail lines. And he said, my reasoning is very simple. He said, a pound of sugar we would use to feed them and give them the, the energy, energy they need yeah. to pull the cars. It costs less than a pound of coal it would take to fuel that rail car. So this is an obvious thing to do. This is the solution. Let's do this. No one I'm not sure did that, because that's the exact. it's not. <laughs> but you can see how he thinks of humans as just a thing. So, okay, what is it? And it sugar's energy. A pound of sugar is cheaper than a pound of coal. This is a no-brainer. Let's yeah. use people to do. So that's the kind of, you know, he, that's the kind of thinking. But again, he was this, it's, but I, it's hard to judge him because obviously he was, he was a bit batshit crazy. But he's, I feel like he's, he, he was always trying to you know, stretch yeah. the possible and, and think imaginatively. He just wasn't super successful. So in February of 1948, Jeffrey Pike shaved off his beard that he'd worn all his adult life, and he swallowed a bottle of sleeping pills. Jeez. Aww. He was 54 years old. He was done with the world that was done with him. And the Times of London briefly eulogized him as, quote, one of the most original, if unrecognized, figures of the present century. And that well, was that was nice. End of Jeffrey Pike. He was, I mean, he, he was, you know, he, he had lots of great ideas. Or, well, no, I shouldn't say great. Lots of ideas. What happened to his children? Probably went with the mama. <laughs> yeah, they she went, left I, him. I think they did go with the mom. Huh. He was eccentric and always naked in bed. The kids don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like his heart was in the right place, except he Definitely. was also... Sometimes. Uh, yeah, except for he didn't think of... He did seem to think of humans as things to be tweeted yes. and pacted. You know? Means to an end, yeah. which is not good. Well, but then again, then you have his thing about education, though, too, which is kind yeah. of strange. Yeah. So he was, a, he was a conundrum. Eh, some bad people have good ideas sometimes. <laughs> I just think he was one of those people who didn't have any like concept of um, realism. Very anti-Nazi, very anti-fascist. Well, that's a low bar. Yeah, that's true. Well, is it? These days, It's not still so a low bar. Still a low bar, yeah. plenty of people are jumping right over it. Yeah. So, Jess Jeffrey Pike, the story of the maddest scientist ever, Well. who has been pretty much completely forgotten. I like being yeah. this one. This is not, I mean, there's very few sources on this. I used all of them that I could find because it's, it's generally a forgotten story and a forgotten person. Yeah. Sorry about it. Well, that's most people. 
Sorry, Jeffrey. <laughs> so I thought we were bringing it to you, the Weird World listeners. Hope you enjoyed that. Thanks, Dean. You're welcome, Carrie. Want to tell him anything? Um, yes. You can reach us at weirdworldpodcast at gmail.com and on Facebook and Instagram and Weird World Pod on Twitter. And thanks for listening. Thank you. Yeah. See you guys. Have fun.